Hello, my name is EJ Schultz, Assistant Managing Editor for AdAge, and welcome to the AdLib Podcast, weekly discussions with newsmakers in the marketing, media, and agency industries. On this week's episode, we catch up with Greg Butler, Chief Commercial Officer of cannabis company Cresco Labs. Butler is an experienced CPG marketer who has held jobs at big advertisers including Molson Coors, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson. He joined Cresco in early 2020. The Chicago-based firm is vertically integrated involved in cannabis from seed to sale with operations in nine states, including 15 owned dispensaries. Greg has moved to professionalize the company, taking a brand portfolio approach with each offering geared for a specific set of consumers. On the podcast, he dissects this strategy and gives an update on how Cresco has pivoted during COVID-19, which has forced the firm to rely more on digital and less on retail and experiential activations that had been critical components of cannabis marketing. Greg, who now lives in Chicago, also discusses how growing up in Canada has influenced his career. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Dunn and Bradstreet. Today's B2B buyers have all the power. According to HubSpot, B2B buyers do 70% of their own research before ever engaging with a salesperson. But what if you could identify these companies currently researching the key topics around your products and services? Introducing D&B Buyer Intent. Now you can identify early stage buying signals of in-market audiences looking for you. See for yourself with a free report. Go to dnb.com forward slash intent to find out which companies may be looking for you. And now my conversation with Greg. Greg, before we get into some detailed stuff here, I just want you to give us a quick overview of what Cresco Labs does. Uh, you're obviously in the cannabis business, but but tell us everything that you guys are involved in. Yeah. Um, so Cresco Labs is uh, one of the largest, uh, what we call in our industry, uh, MSOs, which stands for multi-state operator. Um, basically means we're a national cannabis company, but with regulations in the U.S. and some states having... Uh, a medical program or a rec program and others don't, um, we refer to ourselves as multi-state since we can't really be national yet. And so for what that means is we are, um, I guess you could say, from seed to sale in that we own, we're fully vertically integrated and in that we grow our own flour. Um, we make our own manufactured goods. Uh, we build our own brands and then we sell them to both wholesale partners, um, so individually owned dispensaries, and then sell our products and our, our um, partners' products in, in specific states in our own set of dispensaries as well. So um, hence the, the term from seed to sale uh, is what Cresco Labs is involved in. So interesting times we're living in that everyone's been affected no matter what you're selling. How has it been for the cannabis industry? I know a lot of states have deemed dispensaries to be essential. Um, are you guys in operation in every state that you're in still right now? Uh, we are. Um, and so I think, you know, as you said, it, these are unprecedented, challenging times for everyone. Um, you know, clearly we've uh, we've had to change a lot of how we operate, uh, but we are still operational. And because we are deemed um, in pretty much every state we operate as an essential service, um, whether that's because uh, we provide medicine to those that are in need in states like uh, Massachusetts that have kept uh, the medical part of cannabis open, or um, in states like Illinois, where uh, both the medicinal and the recreational side 
of cannabis has been deemed a essential service. So both sides of the business has stayed open. But across our footprint, um, our stores uh, have remained open during this time. So is it, but can people still go in and browse in the stores or is it like what other sort of like food retailers have done, which is to have to do delivery or curbside pickup, online ordering, things like that? Yeah. Yeah. You're hitting exactly on kind of my point of we've had, a, even though we've been allowed to stay open, we've had to change uh, our operations um, significantly since early March. And I think last time we talked, I think we talked about how we were building our stores to really be focused on education. So you could come in, browse products, talk to a wellness advisor, learn more about cannabis and what's right for you. Um, obviously, with everything that's going on right now, um, we, we, it's, it wouldn't be responsible for us to do that, to have that many people in our stores. Uh, and so what we've done is um, we've really changed our, our entire business model from in-store browsing to pre-order, uh, pickup, uh, priority pickup for medical patients, um, and then really eliminated that in-store browsing piece to more of a virtual browsing piece, I guess you could say. Uh, and then change our stores to pick up online, pick up at curbside where uh, states allow that. And I think that's really the tricky part in cannabis is that uh, each state has its own set of regulations in general. And so as you as you watch the news, each state has its own way of approaching COVID. Um, so we have to we have to buy obviously by the regulations of the state. So I know when you and I talked pre-pandemic, a lot of our discussion was about how important that in-person shopping is for for a new category like cannabis, where people rely on that education uh, for what they call the uh, the bud tender, I believe is the correct phrase, right? So you know, when you walk in a store, a lot of the times it's the first time someone stepped into one of these stores and they they really don't know what they're looking for, as opposed to you know when you walk in to buy some beer, you, you're you're familiar with brands and what they stand for. So how have you been able to convert that to digital? I guess it sounds like now. Well, and it's um. So the need still is there, and I think at the at the root of it, it's just education um, and making people uh, feel comfortable about using cannabis. And so, uh, obviously, um, when we talked, you know, that face to face, being able to show people products uh, in our stores um, was our front line of how we drove education. Now, you know, we've had to change, um, and so what we've really started to see, and you'll you, you'll see this if you look at even our digital platforms. Uh, our brand Instagram pages, our Sunnyside website, we've uh, amplified how much of that information now we're putting on sites. Um, we are uh, trying to find ways in which customers can engage um, with a healthcare advisor uh, through our websites or through our brand sites. And so it's really been a shift of our digital strategy um, to be now almost fairly education focused to ensure um, we're not we're not falling back on giving that valuable information at a time when we, we can't do it uh, physically in our stores. So now, you know, two months into this, how's it going? How's demand? How are sales going? Have you been able to maintain a healthy level of sales or have you seen a, a drop off? Yeah, it's um, it is it, the cannabis space uh, continues to be uh, in high demand. Um, and I can, I can, I'll start kind of with our stores and I'll, I'll work our way back up a bit of our brands because, you know, majority of our sales do come from selling our brands into uh, non-known dispensaries. But whatever state you look at, uh, volumes have been up uh, pre during COVID. And so if you look at our, our kind of our home state we're in right now, of Illinois, um, Illinois' demand has stayed incredibly strong. 
And we know that because uh, we can't fulfill the demand that exists while being responsible business operators. And what I mean by that is, is we restrict how many people can go into our stores, um, ensure that there's enough space for people going to our stores and our staff who are working those stores. We find that when we turn on our sites, we allow ordering, you know, just the, the volume of demand is high. Um, and as we discussed last time, you, you and I met per, in person, um, we pretty much sell everything we make. Uh, and that's a pretty um, remarkable uh, business, which which kind of we were supply constraint before. Um, and now we're a bit, a bit of um, retail constraint as everyone's trying to figure out how do we process people in stores uh, appropriately. But from a demand perspective across states, um, it remains incredibly high. So remains high, but has it actually grown? And is there something about everyone having to be locked down at home that's actually fueling demand, more demand for cannabis right now, whether it's to deal with anxiety or just socialization, um, you know, everything else that's happened in the last two months causing yeah. people have a different mindset about a lot of things. Well, I think you're for, I'll take your, your question in two parts. So the first question is, you know, is demand grown? Um, if, if you look at any state data, uh, you're seeing growth year over year. Now, you might look at a state like Massachusetts um, and Illinois and say, okay, well, those, those states move from medical to adult use, so I'd expect growth. But even if you look at mature markets like California and Colorado are still showing healthy growth quarter over quarter, year over year. So demand in the space, to your, your first question, is it really growing? It really is growing. Um, and I think we're not even seeing the full um, potential of the demand because of either supply constraints or social responsible retailing. Um, and so that, that part is, is uh, very active. So do you see, though, directly demand spiking directly related to um, the, the pandemic and the forces at work there? Um, it's hard to tell. Uh, and uh, I'll say that because um, we are seeing growth, but uh, we also had a lot of uh, tailwinds going in the pandemic. So I think the question everyone asks is, is because everyone's staying home and they have more time on their hands, are they consuming more? Um, that That is, you know, from a consumer behavior perspective, likely true. Um, we just don't have, and I think you know this uh, too, is because we don't have kind of the syndicated data sets like a Nielsen or an IRI in the cannabis industry it's, that has that consumer panel data to help understand, you know, why did you buy for the first time, dot, dot, dot. It's hard to dissect whether that, that consumption is coming from just uh, more people interested in cannabis uh, like they were pre, pre-pandemic um, or if it's... All, if it is truly, I'm home more and I'm buying. The one thing um, we do see is, and it's you know maybe the way that we can kind of try to unparcel that is if you look at baskets um, with our medical customers, um, our baskets have remained relatively uh, flat, with some pantry loading happening pre-COVID and and some loading happening at 420, which is a pretty big um, uh, consumer event in our space, and so our medical customers are buying pretty much the same amount consistently as they were before. But the number of tickets that are coming in, tickets is, is the term we use for trips. So people going to our stores from adult use customers has gone, has continued to rise. So I would hypothesize enough to say that I do think people being at home with some more time on their hands, researching products, experimenting, you know, with different things, um, 
would be helping helping with demand for sure. What about delivery? Are you allowed to deliver in all the states, uh, some of the states you're in, or is that kind of off limits? State by state. Um, so California obviously allows delivery. Uh, Illinois right now doesn't allow delivery. delivery. Um, uh, Massachusetts also doesn't allow delivery. Uh, they are, for the first time now, allowing curbside pickup. And so one of the things that we're watching um, carefully is, and I think this is a broader theme uh, for our industry from COVID, is uh, how it's impacting state and federal regulation of the industry is quite remarkable um, of just things that, you know, we would have predicted maybe we're going to take uh, a little bit longer during a pre-COVID situation are accelerating in the COVID situation. And so things like uh, home delivery uh, is something that we're watching to see if more of our states allow us to do that. Any state that might be willing to do that sooner than later, based on what you're hearing? Well, here's here's how you know all regulations for us um, are looking at an industry, which is cannabis. Obviously, is a is a new industry. Um, we are a high tax tax industry, which means um, we have a high volume of tax revenue that we can offer the state. Uh, there's very few industries, I think, out there that you know are able to give incremental growth because of the new regulations, incremental tax revenue. Um, new jobs uh, through either cultivation, high-paying cultivation jobs, or um, good retail jobs as well that are all incremental. So I think more states, as they're trying to figure out how are they going to deal with their budgets through COVID and through any sort of um, recessionary period uh, as well, cannabis becomes an interesting way for them to find incremental tax revenue and job creation. The big question for years in this industry has been, well, what about the federal level? Do you see any any easing of that as a result of those same dynamics are at play federally, obviously. Um, high unemployment rate, taxes, obviously. I mean, there's a huge spending bill that just happened, stimulus bill. That, I mean, the, budget, the federal budget is going to need to need a jolt as well. Do you, do you see that changing anytime soon in terms of them just saying, okay, let's just make cannabis legal now federally? Um, look, it's the, it's the big question that, ever, that we all want to know. Um, and um, Unfortunately, we don't have a crystal ball, but we obviously are very close to what's happening at the federal level. Um, you know, even some recent things happened. Uh, so, for example, the SAFE Act was put as part of the um, COVID uh, bill that went into uh, the House last week. And so SAFE Act would allow U.S. cannabis companies um, to access uh, U.S. capital, um, which would help with growth. Um, you are having uh, more states get behind. And I think this was this was at the root of the conversation we had last time you asked me that question, which is at some point, the U.S. populace, the majority of the population will be living in a state where cannabis is either fully adult use or medically um, for medical use. Um, it is generating healthy uh, tax tax revenues for the state and also creating good jobs for the state. Um, so I think all of those things you know, come into play. And, and in many cases, the cannabis industry from a federal level, look, we're not even asking for a change in scheduling, but through a simple bank bill um, like SAFE, uh, we would be able to access capital that would support growth of our cultivation, our manufacturing footprint, our retail footprint, create jobs, um, support the demand that we know is out there uh, through more supply, which would lead to greater tax revenues. And so, um, and it's it's just a, a banking bill, 
um, that could do all that. So I think, I hope, at least at the federal level, um, that we, we have a chance to kind of continue to tell our story of how we can continue to help as an industry um, through this. And we also have an election coming up soon, which um, obviously the, the pandemic is going to be the major issue there. But have you start this, Have you seen the cannabis debate part of the election um, debates and from what you've been monitoring? And could there be a shift based on, on who gets in the office, both for the presidential level and Congress and every other, every other thing in between? Uh, I think um, we are, what we are going to see is um, we don't know the degree in which it will be part of um, the components of a, of a campaign. But uh, we are seeing for the first time, and if you look at any of the um, sentiment data uh, that comes out, is the amount of the U.S. Uh, population, whether you're young, old, um, any demographic, support for cannabis um, reform is at an all-time high. And I think historically, maybe you saw a bit more Democratic Democratic candidates getting behind cannabis. Now you're seeing also Republican, um, um, part, the Republican Party and Republican states getting behind cannabis. And so you've got two parties uh, who are increasingly becoming more comfortable. You have a U.S. population that's becoming um, a lot more accepting of cannabis um, deregulation. Um, and you have a need in the industry. So I, I don't know to what degree it's going to be um, a component of, of either party's platform, uh, but it's definitely going to be something that's discussed. And I think we even saw that um, a couple of uh, weeks ago, even with um, uh, Vice President Biden's um, conversation of where does he stand on cannabis? Um, and there was a lot of questions being asked uh, of that as he was on his campaign trail. So it's definitely going to be a topic um, that people are going to be talking about. Okay, I wanted to shift gears a little. Talk about marketing. Um, you're you're a, a classically trained CPG marketer. I, I have spent a lot of time in in you know big established CPG companies. Uh, you you know I covered you when you were at Molson Coors. You worked on Miller Lite. I know you had spent some time and working on brands for Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson. And I think you got you have sort of applied that approach to some degree in the cannabis space. So I wanted you to talk about Cresco's kind of portfolio approach, how you're segmenting your products and um, how you're doing your branding. What's interesting is obviously cannabis is an incredibly different um, marketplace than alcohol and beer and from pharma. Um, and there's a lot of, of nuances that any marketer has to be aware of and understand that's unique to this industry and where it's going. Um, but there's also like any consumer good there's some you know fundamentals of how any consumer good brand grows, uh, and so you know since I've taken on this new this new adventure in my career, I'm learning a bit of obviously I'm learning every day about the cannabis industry and and just what this this plant can do for people um, and how we have to communicate and talk and and think about products uh, that's right for cannabis. Um, but there's also just some fundamentals of how we know brands. Um, and businesses need to grow uh, that whether you're at Pfizer or Molson, um, it's the same basic principles. Uh, and so we're trying to find that happy balance of applying fun good business fundamentals and brand growth to the required nuances of this um, evolving industry. So one of the things that we've really been focused on is uh, we believe in the power of this plant. Um, we believe it can do amazing things. Uh, for different people. Um, 
And so we've built uh, an occasion segmentation within our portfolio that ensures that we're understanding what are the unique needs of different consumers and what are the different occasions and when cannabis is at play and so that we can build brands that really solve those unique needs. Um, and so it, it spans at the very macro level, everything from uh, medical patients uh, who are using an opioid um, uh, for pain relief and are looking for something uh, more natural, or they're using a sleep prescription product like Ambien and they're looking for something more natural. And so for those consumers, you know, cannabis is not an escape product per se, but something that could become an alternative to their prescription routine. Uh, for others, it's a wellness uh, support product in that it just helps them live a better day every day. Um, and so whether it's helping with anxiety or mild pain and spasms. Um, and then, of course, there is the other segment of cannabis, which gets a disproportionate amount of attention, um, which is the uh, the recreational side, right, where, where cannabis is used to escape. And and obviously now cannabis is a um, is an alternative to you know wine, spirit, alcohol. So understanding what are those occasions and then what are the needs uh, for consumers is, is pretty fundamental, to, I think, of any any company um, you, you obviously talk to and follow. And then where we layer on is, OK, so now that we understand the needs, how do we build our brands from both what the brand offers uh, through its forms, through what we talk about to really help address those unique needs um, of those different occasions? Uh, and so. That's where we balance kind of the, you know, I think the classic CBG, but how we do it is now rooted in this new uh, cannabis industry. And Cresco is is more of a house of brands, right? I mean, I know you do have some products that go to market with the Cresco name, but can you talk about, for instance, one of the brands, what's it called in, in the more kind of recreational space versus the wellness space and how you're marketing them differently? Yeah. Um, and so one of the questions we had asked is, do we think uh, one brand can play across all needs? Uh, and our answer was, we don't think it can um, because our consumers and patients uh, span from uh, people like my mom, um, who may not be interested in, in the recreational side of cannabis, but are very curious about cannabis, um, maybe as an alternative to a pain relief, all the way through um friends of ours who, you know, love cannabis for just escaping on a, on a Friday night. And so because we recognize that those consumers are very different in their needs, that takes you away from a, uh, I guess, a branded house into a house of brands where we have different brands for different consumers addressing different needs. And so in that, um, on our prescri more prescription side, we have our remedy brand which is very focused on consumers who are looking um, to cannabis as an alternative to prescriptions. And so as a result, we uh, have that brand predominantly in forms like uh, gel capsules, tinctures, patches, things that you would be very familiar with uh, from um, a medical side. Whereas on the more recreational side, um, we have uh, brands like High Supply, which we just launched. And High Supply um, is a value, I guess, new is a Basically, we're pioneering the value segment um, across U.S. cannabis already exists in certain markets, but we want to bring that same insight to across markets. And that brand is about um, cannabis for a good price, good quality, but really no, no necessarily frills. You're not paying for excessive packaging. You're not paying for um, 
um, all the other pieces. And so that's why in our portfolio strategy, we've we've really said, look, there's different consumer needs, uh, there's different consumers. And then, the, of course, like any good, better, best business, there's also different price points that our consumers can pay uh, as well. Back to the current situation, when you're doing this marketing, I know traditionally cannabis has relied a lot on out of home because it's one of the spaces where you can, depending on the provider, can actually make some decent ad buys. But obviously out of home has been people have been pulling back on that for the last two months as obviously fewer people are out commuting. Have you guys, how have you changed your budget? Yeah, um, you're absolutely correct. Um, uh, pre, Pre-COVID, pre uh, our media buys were um, much more, uh, it's out of home for sure, but I'd also kind of just caveat that with much more regional buys. Um, you know, obviously some of the national media providers are reluctant uh, to allow cannabis to buy media on the national footprint, but at the state-by-state level, uh, we obviously can do a lot from out-of-home radio, local TV if you wanted to, digital buys, FSIs, direct mail, all, all those things, experiential, very much in play. Um, Pre-COVID, I would say the majority of our spend as we were building our brands um, in, a, in a focus on kind of building awareness and driving trial, we were heavily focused on experiential. And that was everything from demos in stores to events. Uh, I think we sh- showed your activation at Grasslands where it was rooted in let's start educating people about our brands and letting them um, learn more about them. Uh, clearly, that has changed uh, in this new environment um, where there there isn't events actually happening. And, and obviously now the time in store per earlier conversation is, is much more limited. And so our focus has really shifted, as we talked about before, to education via digital platforms. And so everything from um, information sessions on Instagram Live uh, to contests, instead of doing a big activation around 420 that was focused on experiential, we found ways to do experiential digitally um, and allowing people to engage with the brand, ask questions, and also um, do sweepstakes for, for events and prizes by 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 participating with the brand um, in our, in on our sites. Uh, we also shifted. Uh, we have um, our edibles line, which is a co-creation uh, with James Beard, award-winning chef Mindy Siegel. Um, we were very focused on getting uh, her and our brands into people's hands so they could taste them and see them because they're pretty incredible. It's precisionly dosed edibles combined with an amazing chef's take on flavors. Um, and so, you know, we always found that when we were able to drive trial in stores with people, um, that really led to conversion. Well, hard to do that now. And so we've really gone into the digital space and getting Mindy to have um, mini content series. We just did a partnership with Tastemade um, where she was on talking about kind of how she comes up with the flavors. And we've done uh, co-creations with Vice and other media where we can create some content about, you know, bringing behind the scenes of what goes into the creation, both from the science side around precision dosing, but also on the flavor side of, of um, Mindy's um, chef mind. So uh, really kind of the macro summary is we've moved from um, experiential and education that's more alive to um, experiential and education that now we're trying to do through content uh, through digital forms. And that's been the major shift in our budgets. You mentioned um, Instagram Live, but what's the situation with Facebook generally when it comes to paid advertising and cannabis? Do they still not accept it? 
they won't at the uh, corporate level, and that's uh, because at the national um, level, uh, which they are uh, regulated against, cannabis is still seen as a Schedule One drug. But you can go on your own page and do Instagram sessions, and that's okay? We can. That's correct. And I think that's every day um, we are learning and through partnerships um, with the national media providers of where they're becoming more comfortable. And I I think, quite frankly, they're learning every day, too, um, where they're becoming much more comfortable with cannabis. I think uh, everyone is well aware that this industry is at its very beginning. Um, It is only going to continue to grow. And, um, you know, obviously, federal regulation would make a lot of this easier. Uh, but in many cases, uh, it's not that it's illegal uh, for you to have a cannabis client. It's just internal regulations and internal how they regulate themselves, it, their, their internal compliance is what's blocking it. And so as their internal compliance becomes much more comfortable with age gating and content control and which states it's going to and dot, 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 um, they're able to partner um, with more cannabis clients. And so for us at Cresco Labs, and what we've always said is, um, and I think last time you were you were at our office, uh, we were just finalizing our codes and conduct um, for our company, which will become the first codes and conduct for our industry. And with a lot of companies like Facebook and others, um, when your your uh, partner that you're figuring this out with also runs a similar code of conduct, it, it makes it a lot easier. Uh, and so we're partnering to help figure out how we make all this work together. What about the ad agencies? I know we talked about this last time too, where, where the reality is if you're owned by a big holding company, publicly traded, while the local agency may tell you, yeah, we'd love to work with you, when it gets down to it, it's hard to get those deals through. Is that still the case? Still the case. And I think it's a combination yeah. of uh, publicly traded and a combination of uh, who else your clients are and their comfort level um, working with a partner that's working with a, a cannabis company. So for the larger uh, players, you know, it's a, it's a very respectful, usually we have conversations, it's a very respectful no, uh, we can't work with you uh, yet because of these things, but we'd love to stay in touch. Um, but then, you know, what, what's, what's amazing um, in the ad advertising world is just how many incredibly talented creative shops uh, that there are. And um, we've, you know, I obviously have a history of working with some very large uh agencies and you know i i'm now seeing also the benefit of working with some incredible smaller um, creative shops that are doing you know great work for us and and can partner with us right now because of um, their their ownership situation so how did how did you end up in this industry obviously you know we talked earlier about your history you were you know you were involved with uh, molson cores you had some worked on some uh, brands at johnson and johnson and then suddenly you you made this big shift into what what I guess is called a gray market industry, right? What what convinced you to make this leap? Yeah, um, it's there is a piece of me when I was at um, Pfizer, uh, which when we're working on brands and particularly in Nicorette, uh, which was you're part of a brand that if you build a great brand, obviously it's great for Pfizer, but you, you also are potentially helping someone quit smoking, which is saving their life, right? There's this great brand and, and health component to it. And in many ways in beer too, it was this, you know, at the end of the day, um, beer is the thing that people love to come home to and it's their, their escape and their, their vice. And so I've always been kind of drawn to industries where the product you're selling 
has a really important component to, to someone's life and brings them, you know, uh, happiness or, or health. Um, and that's always been how I've looked at um, companies I've wanted to work for. Uh, the part on cannabis is I had done in my career, I'd been fortunate to work with um, blue chip uh, CPG companies and spent some time at, at business school and, and worked a little bit in private equity space as well. And so I was desperate to try something smaller uh, and be part of the beginnings of something. Um, and that was just a, a personal, well, my personal development plan. It was I've done big, uh, I've done big brands, I've done global brands, I've done turnaround brands, um, and I wanted to do something uh, that was about growth. And, and at that point, it was kind of, that was step one. And then at Molson, I uh, started to learn a lot and start investigating a lot about the cannabis industry because we were looking as Molson Course Canada made an investment into the space, but also as we were looking how cannabis was going to impact um, our business, started to learn about the industry and where it was going. And, and it, to me, was this opportunity where I saw the beginnings of a consumer good industry. And, and, I, and we've talked about this. I think fundamental. this is going to be a multi-billion dollar consumer good industry. I don't know where it's going to sit in the pendulum of people saying it's going to be, you know, 80 billion to a year to 20 billion a year. I don't I don't know, but I, it's going to be big. And I know that because you're seeing it in just uh, consumer adoption. And I looked at it and said, here you go. Here's an industry that it's at its very beginning. It is going to become a large industry. Um, it is, whether it's on the recreational side or the medical side, it brings, you know, it's a, it's a product that is so important to consumers. Um, and I felt like it was also an industry where I could bring things that I had learned, um, from big CPG. Uh, and trust me, I get it a lot from folks who've been in, in the cannabis industry for a long time is, Hey, you're the, the big, big CPG person, but it was, you can start to bring those fundamentals to a brand new industry and have at utmost respect um, for how this industry has grown to where it is today and where it needs to go. But you can bring these fundamentals. And it was just a um, an interesting opportunity. And when I met the, the co-founders of Cresco Labs and I heard about their vision for where they wanted to take the company and their focus on um, really normalizing and professionalizing this industry and the talent they were prepared to bring in and how they wanted to do business um, it was, I went home and I remember talking about it with my wife and it was one of those conversations, which is, I feel like if I say no, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. Um, and so that, that's ultimately how I got here. So I asked this of everyone I interview in this industry, are you a user? Yeah, I do consume. And, and talk, talk to me about that. Were you a consumer before you started this job? And what have you, what have you learned through consuming and what do you like? Yeah, I've always been a, uh, a rule follower consu uh, consumer. So we'll start with that. Um, I, uh, I have not been um, a heavy uh, consumer, maybe others that you have, you have talked to. Um, and uh, I've always consumed where it is uh, legal and where I am allowed to consume. Um, the the piece for me, um, I, a couple of, of parts of why I enjoy it. I find that uh, I'm more of a take the edge off the day type of consumer. I'm not a big beer drinker, but I did enjoy kind of a, a beer coming home from work. And that's where cannabis sits in my life. 
um, it is kind of that, you know, easing out of the day and, um, and, uh, you know, kind of me time. So are you still drinking beer? I do still Miller light. Okay. Uh, that, I love that brand today. Um, you're going to laugh at me and probably cut me off if I go on a, a soapbox of, you know, it's one of the best light beers ever brewed. I, I marketed it that way. I believed in it. Um, and, I, and I still to this day uh, am a loyal Miller Lite consumer and High Life consumer for that matter. Um, but I also drink wine and I also occasionally will drink um, a margarita and tequila. So I'm not exclusive. Uh, I find products that fit my need and what's right for me. And what I have said on, on cannabis particularly, and I've had the benefit of, of learning about the industry uh, through working in the industry, is I think everyone is going to find that maybe the cannabis they consumed in their youth um, one time or frequently, whatever, uh, that there is so many new forms that can make this product right for you. Uh, and so... Uh, I will always probably be, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a lightweight beer drinker uh, and I'll probably be a lightweight uh, cannabis uh, consumer. I prefer kind of the more micro, smaller dosing, um, so I have more control. But I also think that through innovations like Mindy's Two Migs, we're allowing consumers to kind of figure out how many migs of cannabis is right for them uh, and so they can figure out what's right. So that's uh, that's my story. So still love Miller Lite and Miller High Life and also cannabis and wine and margarita and the occasional scotch. So people listening closely to you might pick up a little Canadian accent. You, you're you from Canada, right? Uh, originally from Canada um, and then uh, came to the U.S. a number of, of years ago. So, but you you came to the U.S. after you graduated from college, right? So, yes. Yep. How has growing up in Canada influenced you at any level in your career? Um you know, one of the things I think anyone who, who starts their career off uh, in Canada is uh, Canada is a smaller market than the U.S. Um, and so one of the things I've I have found, and I probably didn't appreciate it until I got to the U.S., is um, because we are smaller offices, I've worked for always the affiliate of a larger U.S. office, um, an associate brand manager in Canada gets to really do everything. Right. So we don't do advertising on a big budget stage or like the U.S. does, but we do our version of ads. And so you get to see everything in marketing from trade to paid media to media buying. Whereas I know a lot of my peers who worked in the U.S. office, you know, as an associate brand manager, you do a rotation in trade marketing. You do a rotation in um, above the line advertising. You do a rotation in uh, digital e-commerce. That's that's not the true in Canada. You have to do it all uh, because you tend to be uh, smaller teams. And so from a marketer, um, you know, I was fortunate on a couple fronts. One is I had some just incredible leaders who I learned from uh, working in, in, those, in those organizations in Canada. And then two, in every role I had in Canada, I always had a general um, general marketer mindset uh, because you had to. Because uh, it was, you know, only you and someone else working on the brands. And so that just, and when I moved to the U.S. and started working for larger organizations, um, you, while you went deep in certain areas, you know, I really missed the breadth that I had a chance to, to learn when I was up north. Um, so I think that's that's really one of the benefits. I think you, you get, in, and obviously that's from my personal experience in Canada, but I think you get a, a lot of that experience when you work for smaller affiliate offices where you get a chance to work on incredible brands 
um, for incredible companies. And then in these smaller offices, you occasionally get to do a lot more in each one of your rotations. Maybe not the same level of depth um, that you get to do in the U.S., but you definitely get breadth. And that, I think, has just always helped me um, be a more well-rounded marketer because you, you see all of it and you got to deal with all of it, including putting up displays in a store and presenting your your brand plan to your regional CEO. So we're about out of time, but last question, Greg. Um, you mentioned you use uh, your own company's products to take the edge off a little bit when you get home, but yep. I'm assuming like the rest of us, you're home all the time right now. How's how's it been for you um, dealing with with the situation we're in? I'm assuming most of your coworkers are also working from home. How's, how's it going? Um, it, it is new. I think home is, uh, we never, <laughs> we didn't pick our home uh, to be uh, two working parents. My wife also works um, for a food startup in Chicago that also has been deemed an essential service. And so both of us are full-time parents. Um, and now we've also become full-time babysitters and teachers. And uh, we've got a, a two little boys, a five and a half year old and a three and a half year old uh, who are running around at home. Um, and it's really hard. Uh, it is hard to manage it all. But I think um, one of the things we've learned is uh, through this um, from a Butler household perspective, it's really uh, taught us to focus much more on work-life balance because we've had to. Um, and so we've become much more precious with time. And I think that's carried over to how we work too, which is focusing on the big rocks, uh, doing the calls around the things that matter, driving decisions quickly, um, really getting rid of downtime of just corporate kind of discussions without you know clear agendas and decision items and decision makers on the phone. So in many ways, while it's been really hard and you can tell in people's um, voices on calls that the lack of just being able to socialize with folks is hard. It is teaching discipline around, you know, good meeting management, making decisions, meeting on what matters, um, which I think is going to make us stronger as an organization as we go forward. Um, and quite frankly, also may make us rethink how we're going to restructure ourselves going forward from the role of our physical offices to allowing more work from home. Um, I, if you read anything, uh, obviously, as everyone's talking about kind of how it's changing their companies, I can 100% without a doubt would say that we are going to evolve out of this as a different company um, from how we are managing our folks and how we think about talent um, and, and requirements to be in the office and allowing, I think, more work-life balance for people to work, but also um, be at home to take care of families and friends and, and loved ones. Yeah, that's something we're, we're pretty much hearing across the board, I think, from most companies we're talking with. But Greg, we'll leave it there. Thank you again for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks again. We'll have you on soon to uh, get an update on how everything's going. Uh, that was Greg Butler, Chief Commercial Officer for Cresco Labs. My name is EJ Schultz, Assistant Managing Editor of AdAge. I want to thank our producer, Max Sternlich, and invite you to tune in next time for the AdLib podcast and subscribe to us on your favorite channels. Catch you next time.